Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Stephen, and I'm speaking with Professor Sophie Salvo of the Department of Germanic Studies. Professor Salvo is an assistant professor whose research investigates concepts of sex and gender in German literature and culture. She holds a PhD in Germanic languages with a concentration in comparative literature and society from Columbia University, and is the co-founder of the Chicago German Studies Colloquium. She's here today to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. Professor Salvo, welcome to the course. Thank you so much for being with us today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Let's start off with the basics. Can you give us a quick rundown of your career to this point? What do you study and what institutions have you been at for uh, the early stages of your career? So I did my PhD at Columbia in Germanic languages and also sort of an affiliation with the Institute for Comparative Literature there. Then I adjuncted for a year at Colgate, and then I've been here at the University of Chicago ever since, where I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Germanic Studies. Broadly, I focus on intellectual history and literature, primarily in German, and I'm most interested in the history of thinking about language and the role that ideas about gender have played in, in conceptualizing what language is. Thank you for that. And before we get into uh, what's been going on with you more recently, I want to go uh, even further back in your biography and talk about what you were like, you know, like as a kid, like middle school, high school years. What were you into at that point? And was there any sign that it was going to end up going in the direction that it went? Oh, that's a good question. I don't I don't think there was a sign that I would end up a German professor. I didn't learn German until I started college. So it would have been hard to predict that for sure. I think as a younger student, I was always interested in literature. Oh, I probably wouldn't even have used that word then. I was interested in books <laughs> and in English class. But I I know, I, I, I feel like this is sort of just something that's happened over the course of continuing studying. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, you know, occasionally we get people who are like, I have basically been interested in this since birth, but more often than not, yeah, it seems like something that happened in like the college years. Um, and it's always interesting to hear how that came about. Was there something as a kid that you did see yourself doing? Did you have like a, a career in mind of any sort? I think when I was very young, I said I wanted to be a veterinarian, like most kids that I know. <laughs> I think though, by the time I was in high school, when I was a junior in high school, I remember that we had a project where we had to shadow a few different careers and then write a speech about it. And I went one day with my next door neighbor, who was at the time a professor of Spanish at a nearby university, and then another day with my aunt, who works as a producer a public radio show. So I think by then I knew that I wanted to do something that involved some kind of research or continuing to study. But I even, I don't think I could have articulated what exactly this professor did. I mean, we mainly just had lunch and talked to her colleagues. You know, I, I, I knew, I think I probably thought I would be a high school teacher. That was the goal because that's what I had you know, what I saw every day in school. And I just sort of wanted to be able to keep doing, reading books and thinking about things. And I started learning French when I was in middle school, I guess, more seriously in high school. I opened up my perspective to the idea that 
think the way things were in my particular suburb where everyone spoke English and there was kind of a monoculture, like that it opened up the idea to me that things are not like that everywhere. I mean, I, of course, I kind of knew that at a younger age, but not in such an emphatic way. And so I was really fascinated by learning another language. And then when I got to college, I decided to learn a second language. And that's when I enrolled in German. Yeah, I mean, learning a different language, I mean, it pretty much literally opens up a, a different world to you, right? Like, yeah, I, I'm curious, though, why German? I mean, was that like a really concerted like decision that you decided, like, I'm going to learn this language? Or, or was this just like a thing in college where you were like, I'm going to check that out? You mean not every freshman in yeah, <laughs> <laughs> memorized German nouns? Well, my grandmother was German and I still have family in Germany. And so, and my father speaks German, although he didn't speak growing up because my grandfather never learned. But I had a kind of family connection. And I think I had wanted to learn it earlier, but it wasn't offered at my high school. And I also went into college thinking that I would be a linguistics major, for which I knew that you needed to learn multiple languages. So I think, you know, it wasn't a way. I didn't reflect on it very deeply, but it was just sort of a kind of default thing to start with. And then, of course, I took several linguistics classes and realized that wasn't what I, it wasn't what I thought it would be or it wasn't what I wanted to do for a variety of reasons. But I kind of just kept on with the German and one thing led to another, I suppose. <laughs> Looking back, what do you think pushed you in the direction of pursuing it at a well, I, I guess really of, of, you know, German literature to begin with. And then, I don't know, what was there, you know, a specific moment or a specific thing that happened where you decided like, okay, I think I want to pursue this at the graduate level? Well, I was a comparative literature major in undergraduate, as an undergrad. And even when I applied to PhD programs, I mainly applied to comp lit programs. And then I went to visit some. And well, at Columbia, there is no comparative literature department. There's this institute that you have to be sort of admitted through National Literature Department, and then you can be affiliated with it. So that's how I applied there. And sure. When I went as a senior in college, when I was visiting these different programs, I just realized that I, don't, I felt like I didn't have enough self-direction to be a comparative literature PhD student. <laughs> that, that I think, I mean, a lot of things that make the programs really valuable for a lot of people, which is kind of the openness, the, there's not an emphasis on the canon. People can do a lot of different things. I, I was coming right out of college and I just felt like I didn't know anything and I could go many years through the program still not really knowing anything. And when I and I didn't know that until I visited this the, the German program at Columbia and I which had like a I don't know if they still have this, but we had a master's exam list that was notoriously this old typewritten list of books that you had to read that had been <laughs> copied many times. And I don't know. I just kind of, I liked the idea of this, of this sort of infrastructure that would, that I could learn something solid, I guess. And that's kind of what drew me to that program. But why German in college? Well, my first semester of college, I enrolled in two linguistics classes. One was a freshman seminar called language and prehistory, which was mainly about historical linguistics. And one was called language and culture, which was in the anthropology department. And the language and history class ended up involving a lot of problem sets, which was not what I wanted to be doing. I mean, hmm. I didn't love math or, you know, I mean, it wasn't math, but it just seemed to me not my forte. And the anthropology class, we spent the first half of the semester reading theoretical texts 
and then the second half of the semester reading ethnographies. And the reading the theoretical texts, I mean, I think that's what really, it just seemed like a totally new way of thinking about the world that I remember reading for the first time. And there's this famous text, Sosira, Ferdinand de Sosira, who was a linguist in the early 20th century, Swiss linguist. And there's this course in general linguistics where he talks about the, the arbitrariness of the sign and how the words that you know we use, there's no intrinsic relationship between the, the words we use and the objects that they refer to. And, and I just, I had kind of the quintessential college experience of having my mind blown <laughs> by that. And I just wanted to read more of, of those kinds of works. And actually I, I found that they were where they were being taught was in literature department, you know, like Freud isn't taught in psychology for good reason, but it's still a very interesting framework to think about. And that is being taught in say the German department. And so as I progressed through the German language courses, you know, I, I think by my junior year, I could take literature courses in German and the texts were just so weird. Or <laughs> I don't know, they were just something that really fascinated me about, I mean, I think that it, it didn't have to be German. I think if I had gone this far in reading French or English literature, I would have had a similar experience, but mm. I just had a kind of experience of like sort of increasing, I don't know if alienation is the right word, probably not, but did, like I, I thought I knew things and then I realized I didn't. And, and, mm -hmm. and yeah, I remember reading in one of these kind of transitional German courses where you're sort of still learning the language, but you're also reading texts. I remember reading this drama from the 19th century Wojtek by an author named uh, Buchner, and it's just so weird. <laughs> I mean, it's brilliant, but it's also so strange. But I just remember kind of being like troubled by it and sort of still thinking about it and trying to understand it. And I don't know, it was, I think, liter the study of literature. I liked thinking about things theoretically, but I didn't like some argument about legal precedent or something that mm -hmm. someone who was a government major might have, which is also theoretical, but somehow that was less interesting and compelling to me to be not sort of romantic. down. Not just romantic, but that, you know, I wanted to think about not just the world we're in, but sort of poss other possible worlds or possible ways of understanding the world beyond kind of like banal existence that one has day to day as a college student, for instance. And I don't know, I think I also just had a kind of emotional reaction to certain literary texts where I felt like profoundly affected by them, just like the beauty of the language or the way of figuring out the way that they're structured. And it's often, it's a kind of a puzzle to try to pull it apart and understand how everything works and come up with an interpretation that kind of can account for both the plot and the form. And yeah, I don't know. It just captured my imagination somehow. I don't know if that's a, that's not a very specific answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I think that's something that I have heard from a number of your colleagues. Like they read something, you know, in college or, or you know, they yeah. took some class in college where it just it kind of raises these questions that they, you can't stop thinking about or, you know, like presents you with this problem. But you're like, well, now I have to, I have to think about this and I have to try to figure this out. The other part of this, or the other thing I should say, is that I was also in college very interested in, I mean, and still am, in feminist theory and in a certain mm -hmm. kind of, well, like 1970s and 1980s feminist theories of language that come out of sort of or with, working within, but also criticizing a psychoanalytic tradition. And I read them all for the first time in the 
early 2000s. And I came to them kind of past their heyday, but was still looking for certain answers. There's ways to think about how gender works or how the oppression of women functions in the world. And they were taught to me as part of like a survey course on on theory. It was actually mm-hmm. just called On Theory. And mm-hmm. <laughs> there's only one, but <laughs> I, I became very enamored of these. And then at some point, disillusioned. And so I think a lot of my like work in graduate school and even to today is sort of trying to find a way to still think about the questions that a certain set of feminist theoretical texts posed in the late 20th century, but kind of answer them in different, maybe non-essentializing ways. So that was sort of something I was looking for so I also found in certain literary texts, like I wrote my undergraduate thesis on this Austrian writer, Ingeborg Bassmann, who explores what some people call sort of a feminine subjectivity. And I, I was looking for kind of literary examples through which to explore questions that I had about gender and sexuality and, uh, yeah, his, the history of oppression. I'd like to just continue on that. I, I mean, what questions are you interested in right now? I would say, you know, to put it very broadly, <laughs> I'm interested in thinking about the intellectual history of misogyny and what it means and what we should do with it. Much of the discipline, or what, much of what we would recognize in the discipline of linguistics today had its origins in the German 19th century mm-hmm. discipline of Sprachwissenschaft or language science. Anyway, it turns out that I found in my research that a lot of sort of canonical writers in linguistics and in philosophy say a lot of, we could say, unpleasant things about women and about the differences between the sexes. And I think one way to explain what this book project does is that it tries to think about whether those utterances mean anything Hmm. and what kind of role they play in constituting the kind of larger philosophical or scientific systems of these authors. I kind of forgot what your question was and what I'm working working on. So in a more concrete sense, I'm I'm looking at in different areas like the history of uh, theories of grammatical gender, which anyone who's ever tried to learn a a language of grammatical gender in German, you know, it's der, die, das, masculine, feminine, neuter. It has vexed many a language learner precisely because it's arbitrary or it's just, you know, based on formal characteristics, things you have to memorize. But in the late 18th and 19th century, a lot of linguists, philologists came up with theories that tried to explain why particular nouns were of particular genders. Mm. And it had to do with how they imagined that these primitive forefathers had first personified inanimate objects. And so they'll say things like, well, tree in, in German, the noun for tree is masculine. And they'll say, well, it's because the word for trunk is masculine. And so they ah. say that the, the trunk was kind of the father and sustainer of the whole tree or hand is feminine, whereas foot in German is, is masculine because the hands are smaller and dinkier or something. Some I mean, things that are just so obviously speculative, right. but uh, nonetheless kind of were given the value of of kind of scientific truth in these texts. And one thing that's interesting, too, is kind of what they allow to be relativized. So, of course, they were faced with the fact in different languages, nouns are different genders, right? But for them, it's all about kind of the cultural view of a certain object. And so maybe the ancient Greeks saw the sun as kind of having some masculine force, whereas the ancient Germans saw it as fruitful or whatever they say, you know, that that would make it feminine. But what can never change 
and that's what interests me is kind of what attributes get put under the category of masculine and what attributes they put under the category. That's kind of a, a historic right. universal. And maybe that got a little too particular. If I'm hearing you right, and I, I may not be, but it sounds like... <laughs> It sounds like you are looking back at some of the academic work that was done in previous centuries and the assumptions underlying that. This work, it sounds like, was done mostly by men who took some great speculative leaps that were, you know, infused with their own views on gender. And then you're sort of interested in how that affects the study of language and what's been sort of received from that. Exactly. The study, kind of the production of knowledge, I would say, about what language is and how it works. And I think I'm trying to argue in the book that what we would today probably call misogynist statements are not just a sort of detritus <laughs> that we can erase from the yeah. text and then have the sort of core of the theory left over that at least in the places where I'm looking, kind of a certain understanding of the differences between the sexes forms a kind of ground for later speculation about the human being and language and how we should study language. Honestly, I mean, I think that's fascinating. I would love to keep going on that route, but I am going to ask a slightly simpler question here. Just about your your job and what you find yourself actually, you know, what fills your hours. Yes. What do you enjoy right now about your position? And is there anything in particular that you don't enjoy so much? I mean, the only thing I don't enjoy is all the emails, but I think that uh, <laughs> plagues probably most professions these mm. days. But yeah, I think I do a number of different things. I mean, I'm I'm working on this book and doing research and writing, and then I'm also advising undergraduate and graduate students, and then of course teaching. And I teach in the humanities core here at the University of Chicago, and then I also teach in my department. So it's kind of a wide range of things that I teach. But I really love teaching. I mean, obviously, I love teaching. I love I like teaching in my department very much. And, you know, that's where I can use my training and, you know, do something more specialized. But I also really do love teaching in the core. Um, I When I was at Columbia as a graduate student, I taught in their core there and the literature humanities class, which is a uh -huh. year long sequence of great books, as they say. And then here I'm teaching in the readings and world literature. Both of those experiences have just been wonderful because, I mean, one, because you get to see students, it's first year students who are experiencing these texts for the first time, and maybe also experiencing a like new kind of literary analysis for the first time. And you can really see their eyes opening and you can see their their growth as as writers too. But also just sort of more selfishly, I think, it's a great experience because it lets you teach something outside of your specialty. Mm. When it's something that you've been studying for a very long time, you you sort of are beholden to all the various interpretations that you know about and, you know, schools of thought and X, Y, and Z. Whereas, I don't know, it's sort of teaching in the core I have experienced as a faculty member that it kind of allows you to recapture some of that joy and excitement that I felt as a learner, as a student. So like, yeah, teaching, reading the Iliad for the first time, actually, when I taught it at, at Columbia or oh, cool. Paradise Lost or something like that just had, I don't know, it was like a, had a profound effect on me. I hopefully had a profound effect on the students too, but <laughs> that's, I guess, a reason why I'm also very glad to be here is to have the opportunity to teach both sort of broadly and in a more specialized way. Yeah, and I would imagine that it's nice to sometimes like poke your head out from like the very specific <laughs> niche that you're in and like look around. Yeah, and remember, there's a yeah. whole other you know world. There are other other ways of 
imagining and doing things. And yeah. Yeah. What would your advice be for people who are, you know, interested in going into your field? Or, you know, if you just want to get a little bit more general, people who are considering going to grad school for something like literature? I guess I sort of bristle at those kinds. It depends how you want answers, but the kind of prescriptive. Because I remember when, I mean, one has to know, of course, that the job market is bad and all that stuff. And it was definitely when I was applying to graduate school. But I remember all of these people sort of telling me that it wasn't a good idea. Mm. And of course, I'm glad I did it anyway. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't think that there is one way to go about it. You, want, you just have to find a, a subject that you're interested enough in that it can, can sustain you for many, many, many years. But I think that if you're already considering going to graduate school, you probably have something like that in mind. What is the most gratifying thing that you do in this job? I would say the most gratifying thing is discovering new things. Mm. I mean, I just, there is nothing kind of like, well, I would say there's nothing like the rush of sort of finding something new in the archive or or really figuring out an, a problem that you have been struggling with for a long time of how to interpret a text. I don't know. Yeah, I think there, I feel like there's some kind of, it feels like a discovery and kind of a investigation, like there's a mystery to be unlocked. So that would be, that's what's most gratifying and, and kind of what I hope for when I sit down at my computer most days. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's very cool. And I mean, I feel like you, you mentioned, you know, having that feeling kind of for the first time in college when you started to read theory. So it's nice to hear that that's still a feature of your life. I don't know if it's an everyday feature, probably not. <laughs> no, but, and now it's more too like, yeah, finding things in the historical archives, but yeah, learning that there are different kinds of discoveries that one can make. And also working, you know, seeing students make their own discoveries is very gratifying. Thank you, Professor Salpo, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more. See you around.